We're looking at Ephesians. We're jumping ahead today from chapter 1 to chapter 4. I want to talk about the use of our spiritual gifts, and we are in this season of officer nomination, both for, for deacon and elder, but I think it's good for all of us to think about. I mean, that, there's very few people that, that in the church that end up in those roles, and uh, we all have a part to play. And uh, so let me pray for us before we look at God's Word this morning. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts, that you would quiet them, that we'd be able to hear what you are saying, your spirit is saying to the church through the Word of God, and pray that, Lord, it would land on fertile ground and that we'd bear fruit with patience as your people. Call people to yourself, we pray, through this preached Word, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Love is not easily offended, and we seem to live in a, in a culture that is very easily offended, and uh, we're very polarized. I had, uh, had breakfast with Marcus this week, and I, he was, we were talking about that, and he had come across an article, and I asked him to send it to me. It's from the Pew Research Center, and they've conducted the largest political survey in its history, a poll of more than 10,000 adults. Uh, for a certain period of time. And that what they noted, noted in this article, and this is back in 2014, it's gotten worse since, is that Republicans and Democrats are further apart ideologically than any point in recent history. So the growing number of Republicans and Democrats have exp are expressing negative views of the opposing party. Okay, so what's happening is the center, there's not near as many people in the center. There's this, it's this moving of this direction, okay? And what's happening is there's a polarization that's reflected in personal lives and lifestyles, meaning we have less friends that we disagree with. So if we're moving in this direction, well, we're gonna have friends over here, and if we're not, we're gonna have friends over here. And so there's less ideological overlap between the two parties. This is diminishing. And so as this article went on, it said the share of Republicans uh, who have very unfavorable op opinions of the Democratic Party has jumped from 17% to 43% in the last 20 years, okay? Similarly, the share of Democrats with very negative opinions of the Republican Party has more than doubled from 16 to 38%. And then it says these numbers only tell part of the story, is that, you know, not only are they kind of despising each other, it says that the vast majority say the opposing party's policies represent a threat to the nation's well-being. So this is the culture we live in. You're wondering why, you know, you, you have a hard time looking at Facebook. You're wondering why, if I just say the word immigration right now, I could split the church in half. Because we'd say, what does love your neighbor look like? And half of you say, love your neighbor means reaching out to them. And others say, love your neighbor means protect us. And we could split the church right in half this morning, right? Because that's what's happened on Facebook. So what's happened, though, is the center is getting smaller. 39% of Americans currently take uh, a roughly, it says, take a roughly equal number of liberal and conservative positions down from 49% 10 years ago. So the middle is fading, and, and, and we're we're seeing this polarization. And so how do we as a church respond? Well, I want you to know that there were also challenges into which Paul was addressing 
when he wrote this very epistle. This passage I'm going to read is all about love and about unity and living out of this unity. And here Ephesus is this large port city. It's about half a million people. This city was the chief communication and commercial link between Rome and the east. This is basically the west coast of Turkey. And the merchants just flocked to Ephesus, and it's a melting pot of nations, ethnic groups, Greek, Roman, Jew, Gentile, and they're all part of this church. And so Ephesus was the market of Asia Minor. It's the capital of the Roman province of Asia. And we've already noted how one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Diana, was there. And which basically was a massive brothel, okay? There's over 3,000 prostitutes in this temple. So Ephesus could be defined by uh, sex, sports, and supremacy of, the, of Rome, which basically the cult worship is, this is where Caesar is Lord's was, was started, okay? It says, one of the commentators says, the city was also the headquarters for Asia Minor of the cult of the emperor, which encouraged the worship of the state and Caesar as a divine being. So imagine living in Ephesus and everybody saying Caesar is Lord, and the Christians started saying Jesus is Lord. Um, so, the Christians were this ostracized, very small minority, okay, in a culture that was big into the sports. They had the big arena. They had sports there all the time. They had a yearly uh, annual games. They had this huge uh, temple, uh, which is one of the seven wonders of the world, and then you have the supremacy of Caesar. And so in the midst of this, God has called out this people that's mainly Gentiles, but also Jews, And he has a word for them. And here is the word that he gives them. It's the same word relevant for us today in our polarization. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you are called the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who was over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, So we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined joined and held together by every joint by which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love." Now, uh, I got a question for you. 
who are the ministers of this church? I always say, put, get out a piece of paper and write down, who are the ministers of this church? What's the answer? Who are the ministers? All right. Good. I was supposed to ask that before I read the text, and you might have fallen for the trap. But the, uh, the answer, now, do we practically live like that? Do we practically live like we are the ministers? And certainly there's uh, so many areas that you guys can do things better than I can. I'm not good at freezing a meal and taking it to Evie, okay? Um, that's not my, my thing. I could, I could do some soup maybe uh, from the can, and, and uh, that would be about it. I could heat it up and then put it in the freezer. That would be... Uh, I'm pretty clueless on that, okay? And she needs help, so this is a great opportunity for us to help. Let's take a walk for a minute. The walk through Ephesians... And it's the, the key people, commentators will tell you that the key verse in Ephesians is Ephesians 2, verse 10. So if you go back to Ephesians 2, verse 10, and we're kind of jumping ahead in the story today, but here is the key verse that we are his workmanship. We're, and that's the Greek word poema. We're his work, his handiwork. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, this is one of my little pet peeves with the NIV, if you have it. It drops the word walk, and it just says, which he's prepared in advance for us to do. Well, all the rest of the commands in Ephesians are all, are all walk commands. So if you, if you miss 2.10, you wouldn't catch that everything hinges, the rest of the book hinges on 2.10. You're created to walk in them. Well, what am I to walk in? Well, that's the rest of the book of Ephesians. And so we're not saved by good works. We are saved for good works, okay? Because the previous two verses tell us that it's by grace, by God's unmerited favor that you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. You didn't come to church this morning to reform yourself or to make yourself better, Salvation, it says, is a gift of God. It's not as a result of works so that no one can boast. Otherwise, we would want to tell everybody how special we were. And then we get to heaven and we tell God to move over. I'm in charge now. Aren't I special? And so good works, we're not, we're not saved by works. We're saved for good works. Good works is not the ground that saves you, but it is the fruit that comes out of your life that proves that there is a root, that you are a child of God. Good works don't justify, they testify that you're a child of God. And so what are the good works that we're to walk in? Well, when you get to chapter four of Ephesians, in our walk here, we get a therefore. And it's just like Romans 12, one, when you get through the first 11 chapters of Rome, which are all doctrine, and then you get to chapter 12, one, it's therefore. And I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice. Well, same here. First three chapters are doctrine, and now we're getting the practical application. I, therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And so, when I, I mean, when I first became a Christian, I just went right for the commands. 
because I wouldn't understood the first three chapters of Ephesians. So I would look at Ephesians. This is right out of high school. I would just go right to chapter four, and I just tell me what I'm to do. It, I wouldn't recommend this. I'm just saying this is how I started. Just tell me what I because that this is what I understood. So when I got to Romans, I just went, the first 11 chapters didn't make a whole lot of sense, but chapter 12, ah, there we go. It made sense. Colossians, well, just chapter three. So that's how I began. But over time, you realize that's not a good foundation. You have to go back and, and see the reasons of why we're to do what we're doing. And it's because we're his, because it's all by his grace that it's his workmanship. But now we're to walk in these good works. So here they are. We're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we've been called, which is all about humility and gentleness and patience, okay? Then in 417, we get the next walk, and this is what you're not to do. You're no longer to walk as the Gentiles do or the nations do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. Due to the hardness of their heart, they've become callous and have given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So they're messing around with sin and they don't even care anymore and they're, they're hardening their hearts as they're doing it and further and further sinking deeper into the depths of sin. And he's telling us as believers now, don't do that. You're no longer to walk in, the, in this futility, in this hardening. Um, and then he goes back to giving more commands. So in chapter five, he gives three walk commands. So here they are. Five, chapter one and two, we're to be imitators of God as beloved children, and we're to walk in love. And all the, in the NIV, it's the same. They're just live commands. It's the Greek word, peripateo. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. This is what the, the good works were to walk in. We're not to walk as the Gentiles do. We're to walk in love as Christ loved us. And then in 5, 8, and 9, we see that one time we were darkness, but now you were in light in the Lord, and we're to walk as children of light. What is that? Well, the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And so now we're to walk in the light, not hiding in sin and doing things in secret that are shameful. And then in chapter 5, verse 15, it's about how we spend our time. This last walk command in the New King James translation is, is walk circumspectly. But in the ESV, it says, look carefully on how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Don't waste the whole day playing video games or, or, you know, surfing the internet. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So that's the walk in Ephesians, okay? So now we come back to chapter 4, verse, verses 1 to 16, and what you're seeing here is you have unity and diversity. The first six verses is all about unity, and we have a sevenfold oneness, that, that Paul is holding up. The reason we're to live with this gentleness and patience and bearing with one another is because look what God has already purchased. Look what God's already done. He brings us into a body and he's saying there's one body, one spirit, one hope to which that belongs to your call. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all 
And so we don't have to divide over, over our view of immigration when we have all of this unity that we share in Christ, okay? And so then you get to back to verse seven, and verse seven of, of chapter four of Ephesians begins with the word but. You're like, why is that word there? That should scratch your head a little bit. But grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Well, what he's getting at now is that unity is not uniformity. There's a lot of different gifts that God has given in the body of Christ. And so this is one uh, segment of spiritual gifts of many. There's two different listings in 1 Corinthians 12. There's a, a list in Romans 12. You have a list here. And then 1 Peter 4, which is the meditation verses, just lists two sets of gifts. And you got speaking gifts and serving gifts. Just puts them in two categories. But we're all to show hospitality. But then you got these two different types of gifts, speaking gifts and serving gifts. Well, here he's talking about the diversity of the gifts. Okay, so follow this word here that's used here in verse 7. Follow the gift and gifts. So it says, grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, so grace has been given to each one of us. And, this, and it's the Holy Spirit being poured out into our lives and, and imparting a spiritual gift to us. And that therefore it says, when he ascended on high, which is a quote from Psalm 68, we'll get to that. When, when Christ ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So if you noticed in those two readings that we read from the larger catechism, that when Christ ascended up into heaven, he furnishes gifts he furnishes the church with officers. The Holy Spirit made you overseers, is Acts 20. And the idea that, that God is the one who gives the gifts as they come down as Christ went up, and then the gifts come down. And I'll explain that a little bit more. So he gives gifts to men, and then it says, well, what are the gifts that he gave? Well, there they are in verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So that's where I asked, who are the ministers? And it says, you all are the ministers and the job of the pastors and the teachers and the apostles and prophets and evangelists is to equip the saints. But then the ministry is done by, the and it's for the building up of the body of Christ. So this imagery of ascension on high and leading hosts captive, what, what is all that? Well, in ancient times, if a king was, was in a city and an enemy was coming to invade him, and, and enslave them or take over their city, the king would go out to fight the enemy, okay? And if he won the battle, he would come back um, and he would return triumphantly, often bringing the people, parading them in behind him as the people that have, are now been taken captive. He would ascend his throne, he would sit down, and then he would give gifts. But the very gifts that he would give is to share the spoil and to take the booty and the plunder of what they had won and distribute it out as gifts, okay? That would enrich the entire city. That's the imagery. So Ephesians 4.8 is quoting from Psalm 68, and in Psalm 68, it's a psalm about King David bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God, into Jerusalem. He ascended Mount Zion, and the psalm celebrated God as the ultimate king who brought us out of captivity, and our God delivered us from Egypt and the nations in the wilderness, and now God is ascending the throne 
And now he's present in the midst of his people in the tabernacle, and now the fruit was going to be the milk and honey in the promised land. Well, Paul is now reading the psalm through the lens now of the New Testament, through the lens of Christ. And so the defeat of Egypt and the nations in the wilderness is now foreshadowing the greater defeat of sin and Satan and death. And the dwelling place isn't the ark now, it's Christ, and now the Spirit is poured out on his people. And so now the giving, uh, the booty that's shared is no longer this plunder of captive, taking captive of your enemies. It's we have been rescued. The, the, uh, Christ comes and binds the strong man, as Jesus talks about, and he's plundering hell, and he's taking people captive, and that would be us, that we're prisoners of sin, and now Jesus brings us to himself, and he gives gifts to us, which are spiritual gifts, that we would be a blessing to the body. And so Peter, in his first sermon in Acts 2, he describes it like this. He says, describes the ascension of Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. He says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this. And what he's poured out, it's the gifts now have been poured out and the Spirit's being poured out and people are speaking in tongues and understanding each other. And he's saying that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And so now the gifts are being poured out to his church today. We are the the ministers now. And so the church is only going to be as healthy as the members are using their gifts. And so... Uh, the way this is laid out in Ephesians 4 is that there's different gifts and there's different roles and, and these word gifts, the apostles and prophets, these were foundational to the church, okay? So these are these first two gifts that are listed, first apostles prophets. Um, they were the immediate messengers of Christ. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They were appointed by Christ, um, Th- those gifts, uh, they don't, they're not around today. The foundation doesn't need to be laid again. Ephesians 2.20 says the foundation is built on the apostles and prophets. And then in chapter 3, verse 5, it says that the apostles and prophets are declaring the mysteries of Christ, things that had not been revealed, and now they're being revealed. And so there's this word ministry that is given, and the apostles and the, and the prophets have laid the foundation of which now the pastors and teachers are building on. And so as the pastors and teachers teach and proclaim the word, the job of the body is, to, is now we're to do the works of ministry. And so notice how Paul even changes the uh, pronouns. The beginning is all about you. You, 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 the verse one. Uh, But then it shifts in verse 7. Now all of a sudden it's us and it's we. And he's making it very personal. And so if you're wondering, what are your spiritual gifts this morning? Well, what gives you energy when you do this in the church? Typically your spiritual gifts are are given to you in such a way that when I do this, I really enjoy doing this. Whether it's singing, whether it's serving, uh, showing hospitality, uh, teaching, working with children, being a greeter. You know, God has given myriads of different gifts to the church, but
but you're typically energized when you perform them. And typically, you know, it's not your gift if this just exhausts you when, you, when you're doing it. Now, there are things that we're called to do that we're not good at. We're all called to share our faith. We're all called to show hospitality. So even if we're not good at it, it doesn't mean, well, that's not my gift. Guess I don't need to do that. Um, but we're all to do certain things. But there are certainly, you know, when you look at a football team, for example, there are certain people that are going to play certain positions, okay? If you're super small, but you can kick the ball a really long way, you're probably going to be a punter or you're going to be the kicker. You're probably not going to be nose tackle. You're probably not going to be the center, okay? That's not going to be very good for the quarterback or for the running backs if that's the case. So you have different positions that we play, okay? Uh, you would be glad that I didn't sing the solo this morning, okay? That would be bad. My kids remind me all the time. And so we have different gifts. And the idea is that we're, it's for building up of the body. And the idea here is that we all grow up to maturity in Christ. And the idea is that we all arrive, the church becomes, uh, grows from being children, tossed to and fro in the imagery is like this ship that's just being crashed and, and big storm. And, and the idea is that as each part is, is doing their part in the body, the whole body grows up to mature manhood as we each do our part. Um, and so... Um, God did not make cookie cutter, aren't we thankful that we're all just not, okay, he made everybody a teacher, or he made everybody a preacher, or he made everybody with the gift of service. If that was the case, then the church really wouldn't have a lot of personality. And often what I hear from people is they, they often feel like they don't belong in the church because they're different. And what this passage is emphasizing is that to each one of us, grace was given. And he's made us different for a reason. That's the part that we're to play. You know, if the elbow says, you know, I'm really not a finger. I don't really belong to the body. I don't really have a place. And the big toe says, you know, I'm not an ear. I don't really have a place. I, I can't, you know, everybody, I don't really fit in. Those are actually the parts that are indispensable. We need all the parts. And so the enemy would love to get you to think, well, I don't really fit in. Well, everybody could say that to some degree in the church, that we're all unique and different. Um, what we tend to be frustrated about in the church, I've shared this before, that tends to be where you're gifted. So if you're gifted in evangelism, you're going to look at the church and you'll say, man, the problem with the church is they don't do any evangelism. I think I'm going to go to another church because they don't do any evangelism. When you're the one that can be really helpful in the church to help do with evangelism. Another person says, well, the problem with this church is they don't do any mercy ministry. And I think they're probably gifted in mercy because they're seeing something that everybody else isn't seeing. In other words, the problem with this church is nobody helps serving and nobody really sticks around and helps with the different things and people just leave and what's that person's gift? Serving. Another person says the problem with this church is it's so unorganized. And, and everything's just chaotic. Well, they probably have the gift of administration. All the parts are needed because if you're the one that says, well, you know what, I see the problem, I'm leaving. Now the problem just got worse. Your body uses 300 muscles just to balance itself, just to stay upright. 
this morning, when you're standing for that song, there were 300 muscles in your body that were moving. And if you take one step, well, that's 200 muscles. And to produce human speech or to sing is 72 different muscles. So for our church to make it through a Sunday morning, there are lots of gifts that have to be used. It's not just a person speaking. You have to have greeters at the doors to welcome people. You have to have counters and ushers and, and people down in the children's ministry. And we have people even guarding the halls in case somebody comes in that would be not so nice to us. And, you know, we have lots of different people that help serve in the church. We have, you know, I had a professor in seminary and, and I thought he was crazy when he said it, but he said to me, or said to all of us, he said, a good nursery will beat good preaching every time. And I thought, man, he's crazy. What are you talking about? And he said to us, and he, you know, he would just tell it like it was. He said, I'm telling you right now, if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy, and she ain't coming back. Don't care if you hit a home run in your sermon. If she goes down there and gets her kids, and they didn't do a good job or they did something wrong, doesn't matter if the sermon was great. She ain't coming back. So those parts that we think, oh, they're not so important. No, no, it's really important, those child care workers. We're all important. We all have a role to play in the church. So for 17 centuries, the church has declared itself in the Apostles' Creed as saying, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. The universal is what the word Catholic means. It's the universal church. I believe in the church. And what we mean by that is Jesus said, I will build what? Did he say, I'll build the Rotary Club? Did he say, I'll build the parachurch? Did he say, I'll build Facebook? Did he say, I'll build Amazon books? Because we can spend a lot of time in those areas. But Jesus came to build a church. And so the question is, is this a priority for you in your life? This is given gifts. He ascended to heaven, poured down gifts, gave them out to the body of Christ for the purpose, not for us to be like a, like a bus, but to be an orchestra. What do you do if you're on a bus? Not a whole lot. You get to do whatever you want. He's driving. I guess I get to chat and chill and hopefully don't get in trouble. But you really don't do a whole lot on the bus, right? He's driving. I hope he's doing a good job. Hope he doesn't hit anybody. Let's just chill. Is that how we think of the church? It's their job. Or an orchestra. How's an orchestra work? When I was, when I was a kid in uh, elementary school, we had a chorus. We're all up front on the stage, and we had a very serious uh, instructor, and we're up there singing, and she stopped us. And she pointed to a girl and said, you, you are out. And she said, I didn't do anything. And she said, that's why you're out. You're out. <laughs> what do you think that did to the rest of us? It motivated us to sing hard. This was at Brown Station Elementary School. And so we sang real hard after that. Well, in an orchestra, all the instruments have to play their part. If everybody's a cello, everybody's a violin, everybody's a clarinet, everybody's a horn, it's not going to work. But there's a beautiful harmony when all these instruments are working together. And you hear all the different tones, the high and the low. And so in our church, we can't just have all the men doing their part. We can't just have all the women doing their part. 
We can't just have the older people doing their part. And I would say right now, there is a lot more older people, the younger people are going to have to step it up. We can't have just the, the, the children, they have to do their part, the youth have to do their part. Every part has to do their part so that we can grow as a church because what is God doing? He says in, in Ephesians 3.10 that the purpose of the church, he says his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That is a mysterious verse, isn't it? God is saying the church is on display. And the audience is the, is the angels and heavenly beings that are watching what God is doing through his church, that God would declare his wisdom of all the fullness of his being through the fullness of gifts that he's poured out, that he has a head, and that's Christ, but the fullness is the body which fills all in all, and he's declaring his manifold wisdom in the heavenly realms through the church. That's not a bus. It's got to be an orchestra. So we all have to play our part. And so there's this interesting thing that's happening today, and it's this. Here's another article I found online this week, and I've been thinking about this for a while. I found something to confirm it. You know, with the internet, you can probably confirm just about anything. But <laughs> And this is one of those boomerangs that comes right back on me because the problem is the internet, and that's where I found the answer. But here it is. People are spending twice as much time online compared to 10 years ago. This was an article in the Telegraph. This is a UK article. And it says it's fueled by the increase of use of tablets and smartphones. The biggest increase has been among young adults, which time spent online almost tripled from 10 hours and 24 minutes each week in 2005 to 27 hours and 36 minutes in 2014. In total, the average adult spends how much? More than 20 hours a week online, which includes time spent on the internet at work. That's a part-time job. That's a part-time job. So we wonder, why aren't people signing up for stuff? Why are we having such a hard time getting children's workers and youth workers? And why are we having such a hard time? Well, one, we're polarized. We just, we, we identified that. But the other is, we spend a lot of time, man, that, we just want to hang out at home. We got all we we got everything online. We can just you know stream it, watch it, chill out. Everything's kind of ver and I've heard this. We had the at our Presbyterian meeting. We had the campus ministers from all these different campuses come and tell us about their school and the challenges at their school. And every single campus minister shared the same problem: kids are too busy. They don't even want to get involved in any type of. Uh, recreational stuff because they're too busy. Why? Because we're fighting the CIA. Not the literal CIA. Here's my CIA. Competition. That's number one. Isolation, number two. Accumulation, number three. That's the CIA. We fight that in our, in our communities. Competition is higher than ever. If you want to get into a good school, well, it starts in middle school. Got to have good grades. Got a great high school, great, even better grades. And you want to get into that college, well, you better go home today and just spend the rest of your day. Just study, study, study. It's just true, right? It's kind of sad, but that's... So there's a lot of competition. Well, then, to get a job, you, got, you know, these people feel like they have to constantly pad up for a resume. 
So they can't come to anything because of the competition that's all the way back down at the high school level. This leads to isolation, that we become more and more about ourselves and we're removed from the body. And then we settle for accumulation, which is to accumulate things rather than invest in people. And so in that, the church gets the leftovers because there's not a lot of bandwidth if 90 days, 90 minutes a day is the average commute for somebody in this area, 45 minutes each way. So the average commute's 90 minutes. Some of you guys have worse than that. So there's 90 minutes gone, but then if we're losing 20 hours a week to the internet, to social media, and whatever else we're, we're into, there's not a lot of time left or bandwidth for the church. And so what this, what Paul is saying to the church is this is important. Jesus died for the church. He's building his church. He's giving gifts to the church. And so for us, I would say it means we've got to put the big rocks in first. And for, for, for us, I know with our family, as, as my wife likes to tell people in our premarital counseling, when you cut the tithe check at the, at the beginning when you get paid, it's a lot easier than waiting to the end of the month and then say, oh, now it's going to be really hard to give because I've, I've focused on other things. Well, that if you make the church the big rock, this is important. I will invest here because it is a purposeful priority. Then we will be blessed. The reality is this. J.I. Packer said this. He said, you must make deposits if you expect to make withdrawals. And what he, said, what he meant by that was, as we value the health of our own souls in the Christian church, we must learn to prize fellowship. We have to make deposits if we expect to make withdrawals, meaning you want people to be there for you, you have to be there for them. It's, and C.S. Lewis, you know, he said, the basic laboratory for knowing God is the Christian community. If you distance yourself from the fellowship in the church, there is a real sense in which we distance ourselves from the grace of God. This isn't something we can do virtually. You can't virtually take communion. You can't virtually put your hand on somebody's shoulder. You can't virtually weep with someone who's weeping. It's really hard to do that virtually. God made this so as be face to face. He who walks with the wise grows wise. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, we're told in the Old Testament. And as for the saints who are in all the earth, these are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight, David said in Psalm 16. Is that your delight this morning? What a privilege he's given to us to be part of a church. And so as God has given us grace and gifts, we're to turn around and use them so we can be a blessing to others in the body. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you're making a beautiful bride. And Lord, you've given different gifts to each one here. And thank you for the ways they are being used and distributed in our midst. But Lord, we also recognize that there are many idols in our culture, just as there was in Ephesus. Things that we can fall prey to and waste much time. Lord, we pray that you would give us perspective and priority, what to say no to, what to say yes to. We do want to be good students and good workers, yet we don't want to be a slave to them. And Lord, we want to honor your church, and yet we don't want to be a slave to it either. And so Lord, we pray you give wisdom and perspective to each one here, 
that your spirit would make these things clear. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.